Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to have you here for the first uh, university colloquium of 2022. I'm still getting used to writing the 22 on, on the dates. Um, welcome back for those of you who um, were uh, students and faculty who were gone over the break. Um, we're very pleased that uh, today's speaker is Dr. Peter Dula, and I'm tempted to say Peter knows, needs no introduction because I know so many of you know him well and uh, respect his work, students and faculty colleagues. But uh, for the sake of propriety and also people who may be joining us online who don't know Peter as well, I'm going to give a quick introduction and then we'll, we'll listen to what he has to say. Peter Dula um, did his uh, doctoral work in theology and ethics at Duke University, uh, finishing that up in 2004, right? And he's been on the faculty here since 2006, teaching a whole range of topics related to theology, philosophy, ethics. Um, he's uh, been involved in academic leadership as well as chair of the Bible and Religion Department. Um, has a long list of scholarly publications, articles, book chapters, and a really well-received book uh, that was published by uh, Oxford University Press in 2011. Today he's going to be talking to us about his latest research on Jedediah Purdy and the relationship between theology and nature. And I'm not going to be able to tell you much more than that because I haven't read any of, the, of his new work yet, but I'm sure it's going to be interesting. So Peter, welcome. Look forward to hearing from you. Okay, um, so thank you, Fred, for that introduction. Thank you also to uh, all the people that are responsible for sabbaticals. Um, and thanks to all of you for coming out, uh, especially, or not especially, but uh, those students of mine who took up my invitation today to listen to another lecture from me today. I appreciate that. That's how you know that it's the beginning of the semester. Um, also, I don't know how appropriate this is, but um, I think my mother is on the Facebook live stream. And she had a birthday yesterday. So can everyone tell my mother happy birthday? Um, so uh, before my sabbatical, sort of after I wrote my sabbatical proposal, uh, but before my sabbatical started, I was asked to contribute to a symposium on the work of a, a philosopher, professor of law uh, named Jedediah Purdy. And even though that was a distraction from my project, I, I said yes, because the most important thing when you have a sabbatical to write is a deadline and an editor. So I thought, it le here's a deadline and an editor. So the article I'm going to be presenting actually came out a couple months ago already. And there's a link to it on my faculty page. So that's my permission to you. If you've got something cooler to do, you can just read it. But if you want to stay, great. OK. Um, so I won't read all the paper. Uh, and, but I'll try to give you sort of the overall sense of what Purdy's up to and uh, what I found interesting about it. Um, and the slide here, by the way, those, those are my kids at the top of Hawksbill Mountain on the right. That's Jesus. This is the icon of the Sermon on the Mount on the left. Uh, so, and I'll say, I'll say more about Purdy as we go, but for now I'll just introduce um, his last two books, one which was called After Nature, the other which was called This Land is Our Land, which I was asked to respond to. So to start off, the basic argument of After Nature and all of his work really in the last 10 years, including his law review articles, 
can be summarized in four parts. Okay, so I'm just going to give you the four parts here. Um, and I'm going to be more interested in a couple of these parts than others. Oh, I can take this off, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, the basic argument of after nature. First, we have entered the age of the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is the age in which there's no longer any aspect of nature that has not been changed by human action. Anthropocene is not Purdy's term. Um, it, there's a number of different sources for it. It's a kind of controversial term. Um, uh, not so much the sense that there, the propriety of a new age to follow the Holocene, but the, the, the nomenclature, right? Because um, while it's true, it's not anthropos that have left all of nature untouched. It's a particular group of anthropos, right? The global north. So that's some of the controversy. But, um, okay, second, if there's no aspect of nature that has not been changed by human activity, then we're forced to recognize the collapse of the old nature-culture divide, right? The days when we could say this is nature and this is human and, and know the difference, that no longer obtains if it ever did. Okay. Third, this means we need to give up on what he calls naturalism. Naturalism is the idea that there is a singular logic of nature that could provide moral guidance on how to live with non-human nature or with each other. This is potentially confusing because in philosophy, naturalism is often the opposite of supernaturalism, but we're going to go with his definition here. Fourth, in the absence of such naturalism, answers to these questions about ethics and morality must now be political. And in the histories like the one Purdy tells, we see that they have always been so. The closing chapter of this land is called the Long Environmental Justice Movement. And it shows what that politics might look like when it was thoroughly democratic. The uh, critique of naturalism is what, I wanna, is what I wanna spend most of my time on. And the critique of naturalism is in part simply the logical conclusion of the Anthropocene condition. That is, if human action is part of what creates the world as we know it, then how can the world guide human action? It's a fairly simple argument. Right? There's no longer any independent natural space from which to compare human action. Purdy doesn't necessarily say the Anthropocene creates this condition, he says it ought to force the recognition that talk about nature has always been tangled up with human projects and imagination. Anecdotal evidence for this is simply the variety of human practices for which nature has been employed as an authority. At one extreme, here's a classic example from Thucydides' Peloponnesian Wars, uh, the Melian Dialogue where the Athenians are explaining to the inhabitants of Melos why they're about to be conquered. Of the gods we believe and of men we know that by a necessary law of nature they rule wherever they can. It is not as if we were the first to make this law or to act upon it when made. We found it existing before us and shall leave it to exist forever after us. That's the appeal, that's one sort of ancient appeal to nature. You see similar things uh, 2,000 years later in social Darwinians, and nowadays you can see it in some people who make arguments from nature for a kind of unbridled laissez-faire capitalism. On the other hand, you have uh, plenty of people who make the opposite argument, Peter Kropotkin, perhaps most famously in contemporary environmentalists, that the deep truths of nature are mutuality and cooperation. And that should guide any social philosophy. This back and forth can be traced and Purdy traces it down through history with hierarchy on one hand and egalitarianism on the other, heteronormativity and queerness, slavery and freedom all have their advocates who appeal to nature. 
Okay. So, um, as many of you know, I'm sympathetic to Purdy's skepticism about nature and moral appeals to nature. I don't, though I don't think I'm as dogmatic about it as he is. Um, but Purdy has more to say about this, and, and when he says it, I become less sympathetic. So rather than quote him, uh, you can hear for yourself. So let's see if I can. Um, After verbo, whatever that is. Okay. So, um, so I'm going to just show you two really brief moments from this lecture that the rest of my paper kind of responds to. So I would like to ask a question then that's different from <clears throat> what is the view of Christianity toward the natural world or of religion toward the natural world. Um, the question I want to address concerns a distinction between all religious views of the natural world and an alternative. Um, the alternative is the idea that um, the idea that the very thought that there's such a thing as a logic of nature a purpose to nature, an order of nature that can teach us something about how we ought to live together and how we ought to treat the natural world is mistaken and misleading. You might call this a materialist view because <clears throat> it takes And here I want to say something that I suspect will be a little bit provocative. I think, I think Mill is right that the idea of nature as a whole, having a point of view or a meaning or a purpose that speaks in any direct way, certainly in any complete way, to the question how we ought to live with respect to one another or even what we ought to do with nature, is an idea that is only available if you are a monotheist. It's only available if you are committed to the thought that the world is the product of a mind and a mind that in some form, in some way, we can understand as speaking to the questions that we have. Otherwise, there are too many phenomena in nature that are susceptible to too many interpretations and point in too many directions, too much murder, anarchy, suffering. Um, now, I'm willing to be talked out of that. Um, but I emphasize, I don't mean you can... Oh, my glasses are on. Okay. Um, okay, so that's, that's the argument that I'm responding to, right? So it's not just that, right? It's important to note what he's not saying, right? He's not saying... Um, what I said in my previous paragraph, that uh, nature is too flexible, too available for contrary uses. Um, and he's not saying the now commonplace argument that uh, uh, Christianity has a harmful understanding of nature because, for example, Genesis 1 commands us to subdue and have dominion over, or Christianity has often... Uh, promoted a hierarchical dualism of spirit and matter, and therefore uh, Christianity is bad for environmentalists, right? He's saying that any and all attempts to turn to a logic of nature as a model for ethics, whether the Athenians or the communitarians, is a mistake, and it's a mistake that is endemic to religious, especially monotheist, worldviews. That's kind of interesting. But is it true? I should add that it's a relatively common argument, right? So I don't, if any of you are familiar with Yuval Hariri, the book Sapiens or Homo Deus, he makes this argument. Uh, Alan Levinovitz over at JMU in the religion department there just published a book that says a lot of this stuff. Um, 
I lack the capacity to evaluate the entirety of the 2,500-year story Purdy elaborates of, on one hand, a tradition of monotheist naturalism that stretches from Plato to Christianity to Emerson to the Sierra Club, and on the other, a counter-tradition that stretches of atheist anti-naturalism that stretches from Epicurus through Hobbes, John Stuart Mill. But I do think the story is far more complicated and far more interesting than Purdy's aware. So I will make basically two points. The first is that Purdy could easily expand his anti-naturalist tradition to include monotheists. Second, he ought to expand his naturalist tradition to include a great many atheists, physicalists, particularly that group we now know as the new atheists. Both points would make Purdy's story much more interesting, not to mention accurate, but they would require that he give up his convictions about monotheism and be a lot clearer about just what kind of physicalist he is. The point, to be clear, is not so much to mount a defense of monotheism, probably not a huge need for that here, or to attack naturalism, but just to add some biodiversity to Purdy's historiography. So we can start with where Purdy is right. It's certainly true, right? So it's certainly true that, I mean, this doesn't come out of nowhere. Ecotheology's overriding agenda for the last 50 years has been to elaborate a version of naturalism. Most of that work has been dedicated to the appropriation of ecology as foundational to a communal cooperative environmental ethics. In this work, ecology names a complex but discernible system of harmonious relationships among inextricably interdependent creatures. Environmental degradation happens when humans fail to recognize that they too are just another part of the system. When humans choose anthropocentrism over biocentrism, they choose unnatural individualism and competition over natural community and cooperation. Conventional, very general conception of Christian ethics is, in other words, shown to be part of the order of nature. The best book on this, uh, and one that uh, was by my side during most of this research, is Lisa Sideris, um, Environmental Ethics and Ecological Theology. Um, here's how she put it at the beginning of this book, which is a review of a lot of this literature, which just confirms Purdy's intuition. Yeah. Many environmentalists argue that nature presents us with a model, just the way Purdy was elaborating. And Christian eco-theologians especially do this all the time. And some very good ones, uh, and some ones that I, I like a lot. Sideris has been a pretty um, uh, articulate critic of this stuff in, in this book, and it papers at the AAR over you know, 15 years. So while Purdy's modern examples are largely 17th century English natural theologians, the last 50 years of eco-theology reinforces his claim quite emphatically. But there's good reasons to be hesitant. Instead of saying that Christianity or monotheism is committed to naturalism, I prefer to say that's embedded in a millennia-long argument about the status of naturalism. So uh, this slide is Mark Chagall's uh, Moses Receiving the Ten Commandments. I included here because I think Andrea had it. Did you have it in your PowerPoint, your colloquium? Yeah, so we need some continuity between these colloquia. Um, also because it's, it's the cover of another book that was by my side through most of this paper, Christine, Christine Hayes' book, What's Divine About Divine Law? Uh, so I'll just try to quickly summarize what Hayes says. So what she's trying to do in her book is compare ancient Greco-Roman accounts of divine law with ancient Jewish accounts of divine law. 
Greco-Roman accounts of divine law identified it clearly with natural law. The divine law was rooted in the order of the cosmos and as such was very much what Purdy was calling a logic of nature, right? We saw that in the slide with the Melian dialogue, right? That first line of the gods we believe and of men we know, right? There's no daylight between divine and natural law. But when we turn to the Old Testament, we see there that divine law was revealed law. Its authority came from the will of the sovereign, the will of the legislator, God, not from anything the ancient Israelites learned from nature. In the cases where the gap between divine law and the order of creation is collapsed, that's only because something about the order of creation has been revealed by the prophets. Hay's point is not to go on to assert sort of Hebrew-Greek dichotomy. For Hayes, this dichotomy is only the beginning. There is a clear antagonism between most of the Old Testament and Greco-Roman accounts of divine law, one that shows the monotheists to be anti-naturalists and the polytheists to be naturalists, the exact opposite of the way Purdy sets it up. Purdy's got it wrong even at the beginning. But if Hayes was just arguing another straightforward dualism, it would just be, be just as suspicious as Purdy's. Instead, what she does is trace the twists and turns of this distinction as it's reinforced and challenged and undermined and reframed already in competing strands of the Old Testament, especially in the Second Temple literature, and then even more interestingly, if really confusingly, in Paul, and then in the Talmud. Right? So uh, the point of invoking Hayes is not just to say she shows that Purdy's wrong about this or that Purdy has it backwards, but to say that she also shows us how to write a history that's trying to, to cover millennia. Right? It's, it's, it's complicated. Okay, moreover, she thinks it's still with us, present in both Judaism and Christianity, where it's often caricatured as Catholic Thomas versus Protestant Bartians. Okay, that's the ancient complication. That's the, where, how I think Purdy's story should be complicated at the very beginning. Now I want to turn to the end. This is Karl Barth, uh, uh, probably the most famous or influential 20th century theologian. This is from a trip he made to the 60s to the US, and then he visited the battlefield at Gettysburg. Uh, I don't know if, if Ted Grimsrud is on the Facebook live stream, but Ted left this, uh, like eight by 10 of this with me when he uh, retired, and obviously he was trolling me. Um, but I have, this, I have this picture under my set of Bart's Church dogmatics uh, to uh, remind me of Ted who I miss having down the hall. Um, so Bart was arguably most famous or infamous for the viciousness of his attack on natural theology. That attack first took the form of a pamphlet written in response to his old friend Emil Brunner just a few months after he drafted the Barman Declaration. The Barman Declaration was the statement of the confessing church in Germany against the German Christian state church that uh, had um, uh, gone along with all of Hitler's demands. So it was the church of, of Bart and Bonhoeffer and other resistors. This article one of Barman says, we reject the false doctrine that the church could and should recognize as a source of its proclamation beyond and besides this one word of God, yet other events, powers, historic figures, and truths as God revelation, God's revelation. Here in Barman, those rejected sources are Hitler and National Socialism. In the reply to Brunner, the rejected source was nature. For Bart, they amounted to the same thing because of the way they came together 
and in German nature and history myth of blood and burden, blood and soil. The same identification remains when Bart rejects Brunner and Bonhoeffer's orders of creation, work, family, gender, state, nation, tribe, because they grant them a knowability and autonomy outside the revelation in Christ and produce not an ethic of radical discipleship, but instead of what Bart calls North German patriarchalism. Of course, Bart went on to produce his own really egregious forms of North German patriarchalism, but uh, so there's a striking divergence then here between Bart and Purdy here at the end of Purdy's story. Okay, so um, that's what I think is wrong about the first tradition that Purdy thinks he's identified a, um, a, a tradition of, of monotheist naturalism, right? Mono, there's just as many monotheist anti-naturalists as there are naturalists. Before I go on to um, uh, the problem with thinking that there's a connection between atheism and anti-naturalism, I just want to back up a bit and say a bit more about my relationship to Purdy's work and my affection for it, because I know I've been mostly critical. So I came to Purdy late, discovering him not in his first and most famous book, Four Common Things, up there in the top left corner. That book came out, I think, in the mid-90s. Uh, it, it made him really famous. Um, he had just graduated from Harvard. Uh, he grew up this sort of son of back-to-the-lander hippies in West Virginia. And he published this essay um, that uh, made him, you know, he was called The Voice of My Generation. I should have read him because, um, anyhow, I never read that book. But I discovered him later in the pages of N Plus One, where in 2014, he published an extraordinary essay called The Accidental Neoliberal. So you should, if you have your laptop, you know, you should just Google this essay and read it instead of listening to me, because it was a really remarkable confession for entire generations, my generation's failure of political imagination, as well as a record of his penance. Later, I came to know him as an interpreter of the 2016 elections. Purdy seemed to me then and now the surest guide to understanding the significance of both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. So I have on this slide just half a dozen of, of articles from, from that year, from the 2016 and 17. Coming across those essays in the winter and spring of 2016 enabled me to clear my head by elaborating arguments that I knew to be true but felt myself losing my grip upon or felt myself having trouble articulating. That, for example, the rise of Trump did not teach us something about the excess of democracy but about its lack. That hopefulness about the possibility of a leftist future for the US could come because not in spite of a darkly pessimistic understanding of our present. So I think of Purdy first and foremost, not as a scholar and historian of environmental law, which is what he is, but as a theorist of democracy, which is also what he is. I could call him prophetic, but the truth is, in those days, five, six years ago, I treated him more like a pastor. Those essays functioned for me as sorely needed sermonic exhortations to keep the faith, to resist the temptation common in November 2016 to believe that Trump meant neoliberalism, not democracy, was the best the resistance could hope for. I came to his book, After Nature, in the course of preparing for an upper-level seminar in ecotheology in the spring semester of 2017. And I found in it a model of how to treat competing environmentalisms with generosity and a warning about how any position was prone to use nature in order to skirt the necessity 
of the democratic negotiation of claims about nature and to displace one's responsibility for his or her convictions onto nature. This argument, which we'll come back to, still seems to me to be the beating heart of Purdy's work, but perhaps because I was reading it, or reading after nature in the wake of November 2016, I missed how that claim is one piece of a wider argument that is as much, that is as much anti-naturalist as it is pro-democracy. So let me back up, you have a few more steps. If I understand him correctly, Purdy has four distinct, if interrelated, problems with naturalism. Uh, the slide here, by the way, is uh, you could think of this, for those of you who are familiar with this literature, on the left is William Cronin's book, Uncommon Ground, um, which is a little old now, but uh, really kind of um, uh, influential in sort of argument against the nature culture distinction. He's a Chicago guy, he wrote, he wrote a great book about Chicago. On the other side is Peter Volubin's Hidden Life of Trees. Many of you know that book. Um, Purdy loves Cronin's book. He's pretty contemptuous of Volubin's. Um, uh, I, I kind of like them both, but I get his point with uh, the uh, communist trees. Uh, the first problem with naturalism is, this is we're reviewing here, the Anthropocene condition. Because we've entered an age when every corner of, of, of nature has been transformed by human activity, it doesn't make sense to turn to nature as a guide to human activity or as an independent guide. We went over that. The second is what I'll call, for a lack of a better term, uh, uh, the postmodernist argument or the Anthropocene insight. This is Cronin's argument. There has never been, not even before the Anthropocene, a natural nature. Only cultural constructions that reflect human judgments, human values, human choices. That's a quote from Cronin's book. Um, that's Cronin and Purdy's argument. And that's Purdy's debt to Cronin there. Okay. Um, the third argument is the anti-reductionist argument. You heard that some in the second quotation from the video. Uh, this argument doesn't require the, the collapse of the nature-culture distinction. It's just instead the problem with naturalism is that it reduces the astonishing variety and complexity of nature to a singular overarching principle. It manufactures unity out of diversity. The fourth is what he calls the democratic argument. Here's the quote, right? Each form of American environmental imagination has called on the natural world to underwrite, to naturalize one version of politics while excluding others from the debate each version has evaded politics, tried to shut down imagination and mobilization by claiming that certain collective questions can be decided by nature, not by human judgment. Okay, what's he mean by that? The best analogy I can think of is with uh, behavior with regard to the coronavirus. So this, that's why I put this nice little slide up here. Um, Maybe you, like me, back at the beginnings of the pandemic, lots of your friends and colleagues would post, um, well, if, it depends who your friends are. Um, <laughs> post things on social media that said, I trust the scientists, or I trust science, right? They don't always say, not morons, right? So what Purdy would say is that we have been unable to say that social distancing, masking, vaccination are right and necessary. And at the same time to say that such a decision is a political one, not simply a scientific one. Such a decision is a political one in that 
because it is one in which costs and benefits to particular constituencies must be weighed, not through a utilitarian calculus, but through democratic argument in which the voices of those various constituencies are heard. It's a political argument because there are different groups benefiting and different groups suffering from particular decision. The interests of the teachers' unions, the mental health of the students, the economic costs of these various things. Like climate change, that conflict has been painted on the left as one between those who listen to the scientists and those who have turned it into a political issue instead of as competing political judgments. Purdy wants us to face that we, if you were those, if you're on the left of this question, or that's, I mean, this maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so Purdy wants us to see that we're all making political judgments and that a slide like this, trust the science, is a way of displacing responsibility for that judgment onto something else. Right? He's not arguing with, with, with any of the policies. He thinks we need to take ownership of them. Okay. And he thinks most, what he said, calls uh, each form of American environmental imagination, and he has, the book outlines different ones, I'm not gonna go over them, each of them avoids that precisely in this way, by trying to naturalize their ethics. Okay, I'm coming to an end here. I think I understand all four of those arguments on the last slide. I think I mostly agree with them. My affection for Purdy, my abiding debt after nature, and this land is our land, is because of my agreement. What confuses me is that we seem to agree for opposing reasons. While Purdy associates these, this, these arguments with a challenge to naturalism and the philosophical tradition of monotheism, I have, for most of my academic life, associated them with a challenge to positivism, the philosophical tradition of materialist atheism in which the only truths are scientific truths, and which is therefore committed to caging not just theology but also the humanities on one side of a fact-value dichotomy, a dichotomy made possible by a fundamental misconstrual of mind and world. Okay, there's about 200 years of philosophy in that sentence, but. Um, Importantly, importantly, it's acutely vulnerable to, to the, all three, or the latter three of these criticisms. Can't accept that there's no natural natures. It is inclined towards reductionism, and it wishes to evade politics in exactly the way Purdy decries. Take, for example, consilience. E.O. Wilson, God rest his soul, didn't he just die? Um, E.O. Wilson's dream of ending the fragmentation of the disciplines in a unified theory of knowledge grounded in evolutionary biology is naturalism on steroids. Sam Harris, author of Letter to a Christian Nation, his more recent book, The Moral Landscape, presents a logic of nature that is totalitarian in scope and ambition. Purdy writes, the idea that nature is morally instructive in any straightforward way is nearly impossible to maintain unless one starts by assuming that the world was created by a benign and omnipotent God. But Harris, one of the most famous of the new atheists, subtitles his book, How Science Can Determine Human Values. And he finds utilitarianism to be written into the logic of nature. Stephen Pinker, too, and this might not be his last book, but a couple books ago, they all run together, ends his enlightenment now with an attempt to naturalize utilitarianism. In each of these examples, we see a clear-cut case of what Purdy has called naturalism, 
of thinking that the right account of nature will straightforwardly issue in the right account of morality. But each of them is also thoroughly anti-religion and anti-monotheist. This desire for naturalization is not confined to these sorts of vulgar physicalists. It's also a growing trend across various disciplines. Among theorists who have a lot more in common with Purdy, also turn to claims about nature to show that practices of receptivity associated with democracy have neuroscientific grounding, et cetera, et cetera. The point is not necessary to criticize these appeals, nor is it to pile up more counterexamples to Purdy's dualism. I think it's fairly obvious that each of his stories can, has uh, counter stories. Instead, it's to suggest, and this is the, this is the last paragraph, it's to suggest that we need to turn Purdy's claim about monotheists into a question about all of us. Perhaps Purdy is right that there is, in fact, some kind of er source for naturalism, even if he's wrong that it's monotheism. Purdy suggests one possibility, the temptation to think that certain questions must be decided by something other than human judgment. That temptation to displace responsibility for a decision onto an external source that doesn't require my participation or ownership is often born of despair and fear and can overcome anyone, not just monotheists. And it can be filled by science just as easily as God. We want to naturalize our ethics for the same reason fundamentalists want the Bible to interpret itself. Instead of wrestling with texts and nature and each other, like Jacob wrestled with God at Peniel, we want them to enable our avoidance of such wrestling. That desire is totally understandable. Purdy's right, it's not very democratic. Perhaps we should also say it's not very Christian. But as Purdy would say, I'm open to be challenged on that. Thank you very much. That's fine, too. Um, so uh, I'm happy to take any questions, any uh, quarrels, any um, comments. Um, yes. Oh, let's, give, let's take the mic from Rhonda so uh, we can all hear you. So you mentioned in the beginning about the age of Anthropocene, about how without, now that humans have basically touched everything in nature, we can give up a nature and culture distinction. Can you go into further detail about that? Yeah, so um, the idea is that in the age of the Anthropocene, humans have affected everything, right? So uh, there's, there's, not, there's no untouched wilderness. There's no uh, species whose sort of uh, development or evolution or habitat hasn't been uh, affected in some ways by humans. So human, human culture is just, has, or activity somehow is influencing all the things out there. That's, I think, all it means. Does that help? A little bit. Roman, thanks for coming, Roman. Is, maybe. Uh, I'm curious. Does nature speak? 
What does it say? Uh, yeah, okay, so that's a great question. Um, and it's one that's clearly uh, invited, maybe not begged, but at least invited. Um, uh, the, answer is, the answer to the first part is yes. Uh, the answer to the second part is be very careful with the people who say they know. I guess it's the, the short answer. So I think I, uh, what Purdy, Purdy is not claiming that nature doesn't have a voice. And claiming, is not uh, claiming that we should be relativists about what we know about nature. Purdy is trying to say, it seems to me, is that um, there's very few things, or anything we learn from nature isn't immediately applicable to a particular situation. That it becomes a voice in a conversation about what should be done in a particular situation. It can't override other judgments and sources. Just a little bit of a follow-up. I'm understanding from your explanation that there is a dichotomy between human activity and nature i.e. human activity is something other than nature. Am I reading analysis wrong? Um, yeah, so, uh, um, yes. I mean, I think that, that's definitely the, he's dealing with and writing out of a tradition that wants to make that distinction without necessarily denying that human activity is also natural. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, so what I think Purdy would say, and Purdy loves this famous quote from Edmund Burke, art is man's nature. Yeah, or from Pascal, custom is human nature. So the human is the unnatural animal. Yeah, the, 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 um, which is meant to be paradoxical. I'm wondering whether he engages any indigenous scholars at all. I mean, I'm struck by, like, you know, our uh, democratic republic is based on the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Iroquois Confederacy, um, which was created without any of this Western philosophical background. And so I'm just wondering what the, maybe what the non-Western critique is or what the indigenous critique is, maybe some of his other uh, dialogue partners are talking about indigenous um, interpretations of yeah. humankind versus nature, um, our place in that. Um, because again, and I think you kind of nodded to this, like the Anthropocene is spreading the blame over everything and not just capitalism. You know, some people argue obviously for the term capitalocene and not Anthropocene. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm just wondering what the, what the dialogue is with indigenous cultures on these, on these topics. So two of the essays in this symposium um, kind of press this question, Isaac Villegas' essay and the, another uh, 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 Canadian who I don't know. Um, uh, but I mean, the short answer is no. Like, so his last chapter of the Long Environmental Justice Movement takes up some of this, but um, as far as engaging with how uh, indigenous traditions might configure nature differently than this, than sort of Western, no. no. Uh, I mean, so yeah, it's a question about what kind of problem that is. And um, uh, there were a lot of kind of, so I tried to keep this paper pretty tight on sort of one question. There are a number of kind of directions it could have gone off, and that's one, right? Roman's question is another one, just what exactly is the status of nature then in, um, and if Purdy's wrong, what's right? So, yeah.
Uh, the, the contrast you are, uh, have presented of, of how Purdy says that naturalism is uh, a, 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 distracts from or, or doesn't allow the political to be central in, in human processes. Is there any way that he uh, looks at some of the work of people, let's say, Thane Maynard, for example, a, a disciple of E.O. Wilson who has his 90-second naturalist every morning on the radio and was told to do that by E.O. Wilson. Right, right. And, and, and it strikes me that, that that particular approach isn't saying that nature teaches us, but that yeah. if we know more about the amazing intricacies of nature, it should inform our political discourse. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, well... Um, he will frequently say things like that. Like elsewhere in this lecture, uh, um, he will, he has, um, uh, his argument is pretty particular, right, with what eco-philosophers are doing with stuff, what most of them are doing with this stuff. That's who he's quarreling with. Um, but I'm sure he loves, uh, the 92nd Thanks a lot, Peter. That was really good stuff. Um, it, it seems the yeah, really appreciate the way that it's less making claims about nature than making the claims about politics that are really important. Yeah. Um, and so, and the really important work of historicizing, that sounds like is really, really a big part of that. Um, I feel like, I, th I think I, I heard you getting towards some of the you know, where the rubber hits the road on some of that, in particular when you started talking about positivism, too, in terms of what, what politics are we to take on. Um, but I wonder if either in your engagement with this or, or he himself, through this kind of act of denaturalism or denaturalizing, are there particular political or economic agenda or institutions that we really need to be paying attention to and that were obscured before because of the way they were naturalized. So um, most of what Purdy writes about is either the Moral Mondays movement down in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, because he used to be a Duke. So, um, and uh, also active in the Occupy movement so when he's actually writing about politics, he's usually referring to those particular movements, writing in a more kind of autobiographical way. Um, but your more specific question about how this stuff might refigure some current debates or examples of naturalities, I mean, one is just climate change, right? I think I talked about that a little bit. Um, uh, but I guess the primary mode is just uh, to, so we talk a lot more nowadays about environmental justice than about the environmental justice movement than we used to. And much of his work is sort of showing how that didn't just begin in 1978 in, in Warren County, North Carolina, but it has a much longer history in American politics. Um, so. I have a tendency correctly. And that's basically that um, thinking's hard and 
we don't know what the right answers are. And so everything becomes political. We have to argue with each other about those things. And the argument is those who point toward God and say, I know what God thinks, and so that's the absolute truth. Or if you turn and look at nature or science or however you define it and say, I know I'm right because that's true, and so I understand this absolute, or I understand this absolute that you can't argue with, because you can't argue with God, and you can't argue with nature, right, if, if they're pure. But what, what you're saying is that we can't understand either of those two things, and so anything we say does have to be, it has to remain in this argumentative state where we aren't certain and so this is the democratic piece of it. We have to just keep, the only legitimate way to keep moving forward is that the argument stays alive. That there's certainly some things we can say are more true or less true, but we can't ever fully cling to one thing or another and stick our stake on it and say this is absolute because then we'd be saying, I understand nature or I understand God and I know the truth. Is that? Have I, I think, I'm sure I've missed nuance throughout this, but that's, that's, what, that's, my, that's my current takeaway in my head. So, um, I don't think, so Purdy's not trying to make an argument, he's not trying to make a philosophical argument on absolute truth, right? I mean, and I think he would think that's a total red herring. Um, I think he's thinking that the, the small t truths that we do have, right, are ones that we have to take responsibility for. And that one way we take responsibility for them is uh, opening them up to arguments, right? The way we fail to take responsibility for them is to what he, do what he calls naturalizing them the other way is to just become a sort of relativist or skeptic, right? So there's no truth, there's no certainty, blah, blah, blah. So anyone can do whatever they want. He thinks that's just as bad as what you call the absolutized inversion, which isn't what he calls it. Um, so uh, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I take it as largely, or it's helpful to think of it as less prescriptive than descriptive of what we in fact do every day if we are in fact committed to something, right? Um, uh, you're not saying, look, you should be in conversation about this. He's saying you are in fact often in conversation about this kind of stuff um, and be careful about the ways you try to shortcut that conversation, either with the naturalizing move on one hand or the, the relativizing move on the other. Okay. Thanks for coming, everyone. <laughs>